This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your start for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. Monica, we gotta go get wasted. Twelve bars, one mile, not a lot of walking to do. Let's do it. Let's do it. It'll be like we're in high school and college again. Yeah, I want to be in a country that would allow that in high school. <laughs> that's that's the main difference between coming over to from the UK over to the US is that oh, this is more of a college thing actually. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, this is part two of episode number sixty three of Cinema Fix, focused on the movies You're Next and The World's End. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Go away. We don't want you here. If this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, basically this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to in-depth discussion of mainstream blockbuster films, and each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion, and the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers, and it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one, or at least after you've seen the movie. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want to be spoiled about your next or the world's end, stop listening now and go check out part one of this episode. We are doing something a little bit different this week. This is the first time we've ever done this. Uh, we're going to be talking about two movies. First, we're going to be discussing Your Next, and then we're going to move on to The World's End. If you haven't seen both of those and you don't want us to spoil one of them for you, you can find the time codes for when we discuss each film by going to filmgeekvideo.com or checking the show description on iTunes or your mobile device. First, we're going to talk about Your Next, so let's dive right into it. Before we get into some of the political subtext that I really want to talk about that I brought up in, in, in part one, I just have to say, Blender Kill was awesome. Blender Kill was awesome. Definitely one of the more innovative kills I've seen in a horror movie this year. So if, if people are in the mood for some creative kills, Your Next isn't a total waste. I stuck a blender in his head <laughs> and killed him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and there's just some so there are some really great moments like uh, the moment when Felix stabs uh, Drake, Joe Swanberg's character, and he just keeps stabbing him. Why won't you die? <laughs> yeah, he just, he keeps stabbing him with all these flathead screwdrivers and he just won't die. And the sound effects are the worst part of that scene. Because they don't even really show him being stabbed. They yeah. keep it framed on Joe Swanberg's face. I was going to say, sad Joe Swanberg. It's actually pretty sad. Yeah. <laughs> that is Joe Swanberg. And I, I think a few of the sound effects are just like something popping or like air escaping from <laughs> something. So it's, it's it sounds like his lung being punctured. It's just, ugh, it's just really kind of gross uh and th that was a pretty well done kill scene as well i thought but uh oh, i mean overall what stuck out to you the most in your next uh final girl we'll get that out of the way right now <laughs> yeah let's talk about final girl uh aaron played by sharni vinson she is a survivor of a survivalist camp apparently out in australia that her dad moved her to and has all right. the skills to kill the bad guys 
And that is different from a lot of horror movies. At the same time, Monica, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, oh, come on. You've got to be kidding me. No, I really liked it because usually the final girl is just the girl who happens to escape or happens to just survive things covered in blood. And she does a lot of the screaming. She's just a scream queen. That's where that phrase comes from. But this one, she doesn't scream past, like, the first kill. And then she's all like, well, I got this, guys. (laughs) It's like, no, I don't think you should go outside. It's actually going to be dangerous. You're going to die. I liked that part of her character. I just I thought the explanation for how she 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 got to be such a badass was kind Would of. Would you have preferred that she just watch a lot of horror movies? Maybe I don't know. It just it just seemed really weird to me that she would suddenly be like, "Oh, by the way, guys, I grew up on this crazy survivalist camp, and I've never told anybody this, including my boyfriend." Yeah, that seems like a poorly written OkCupid profile. Yeah, because <laughs> clearly she left that out. I don't want to talk about this, actually, but since we're in a life or death situation, I'll mention the fact that I grew up on a survivalist camp. Yeah. <laughs> That's how those conversations come out. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was just very awkward to me. Like, I, I liked the fact that she was a badass. I just thought the explanation for why she was a badass was kind of goofy. Alright, I'll give you that. I had fun. I thought I had I, I had a good laugh at oh yeah. She's gonna she's gonna get those guys now. <laughs> Why can't she just be a badass, Monica? Why can't she just be a smart, quick thinking woman? Yeah, why couldn't he just date a kung fu instructor? <laughs> An MMA fighter. Why couldn't she just be the calm, cool and collected one? No, because everybody loses their <laughs> when things go down. Didn't you see the movie? Everyone panics and then like almost runs into their own death. Especially girls, which I thought that was another thing that was funny, is that the girls end up dying first, basically. Well, right, and I like how Aaron is the calm, cool, and collected one. I just don't think they needed that whole survivalist thing. Again, little smidges of camp. Not enough to make a schlocky. Yeah, the tone of this movie was really weird, because at times it would be super serious, and it would seem like it was going for this dark, traditional slasher film, and then other times it would be just kind of goofy and funny, and I found myself wishing that they would just pick one, you know, either go for super scary or go for more of, like, a horror comedy. Like, I really love the moment when the attack first starts to happen and they're arguing at the dinner table and then Tariq, played by uh, Ty West, gets shot in the head. I thought that was great and I I love how they're all just freaking out trying to figure out what to do and they're having this little debate about like who should run and get help and they're arguing about who's the fastest and it's like these normal family quabbles are happening in a life-or-death situation. And I thought that was really creative and really fun. And then they just kind of got rid of that. They kind of got rid of it because they family started to die. <laughs> it's kind of hard to have a fight when dad's dead. Well, I mean, Drake stays around for, for a while. But he's, like, in and out of consciousness because he has the arrow in his back. Aaron's not exactly in that family. And then, obviously, uh, Felix is rooting for them all to die and kind of just, like, stands to the side for a lot of things. That was the one interesting thing that I had um, watching the movie for the second time is that there are little hints that, well, actually, Crispin is kind of sketch. And Felix had little hints that he wasn't so emotionally invested in his sister's death or his brother's stabbing. Yeah, but... 
on the whole, I wanted some more moments like that because I feel like these characters, they're, they're just drawn as minimally as possible. I don't think that's true. I, I mean, they, they, they all are given just enough to make them feel distinct from each other. We've had slasher films that give even less characterization to well, right, some of the people right. they just use for cannon fodder. I agree. And this this movie does give each of their characters a little bit of a personality, but it's not and a whole lot. You can tell, lot. like, for, for the more quote-unquote normal members of the family, like, there is some sort of affection and, like, you know, the dad calls the the daughter princess and little things like that that make it feel a little bit more lived in than, say, father, son, <laughs> daughter. Yeah, I, I wanted to see more of that family dynamic as all of this chaos is happening around them. Mm. Because as the movie went on, I felt like it just gradually turned into more and more of a traditional slasher slash revenge movie. Yeah, as I mean, as it goes on, obviously, because we're losing characters, so the whole family appeal kind of dies with that. I mean, we, we've seen movies like this before, though. We've seen a ton of movies where people get attacked, a bunch of people die, and then the ones that are left rise up and get revenge and, and take out the it's bad guys. It's usually more than one, and this one, it's kind of Aaron that ends up being the lone girl. And she wasn't part of the family either. They don't have the same relationship with her as they would with the other brothers. So, like, the brothers bickering and things like that you won't have with Aaron because this is the first time she's meeting the family. Right. And I'm saying I wish that the script had either allowed people to live longer or, or done something. So you would have preferred if, like, Amy Siemens's character um, would have been allowed to live because then it would have been her family dying around her. Would that have been a better situation for you? I just wanted to see more of that family dynamic. I mean, not everyone gets killed off right away. So we get that little bit at the beginning where the brothers are squabbling about who's the most physically fit or whatever. And then they just kind of leave that all behind. I, I, I would have appreciated some more insight into, you know, the, ch- the, the these siblings' relationship to their parents you know, was that strained at all? Did they all love their parents? It seemed distant, like everyone had their own lives. Right. I, I would have liked for the details of those relationships to have been colored in a little bit more. Okay. Just because I thought Joe Swanberg was so funny as kind of the, the douchebag <laughs> brother. <laughs> the jock douche. <laughs> yeah, who's always busting everyone's balls and picking fights and, you know... Kind of being like, oh, ho, you're so fat, you're out of shape. Yeah. Well, the thing that started the fight was that he said that um, Crispin and Aaron's relationship was inappropriate because she was a former student. Right. And then, and before that, he had insulted Tariq. Yeah. With a documentary filmmaker, you know, I think commercials are the best thing ever. Right. And I, I thought that was really interesting. And then when he gets stabbed and passes out, mm-hmm. it's just kind of like all of that personality seeped out of the movie for me. Okay. And it just kind of turned into a pretty traditional slasher. I guess what I'm saying is the movie needed more Joe Swanberg. Wow, I never thought I'd hear those words come out of your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought the actors did a pretty good job overall. I just wish the script had been a little bit more original. Okay. I I can see your your argument there, because as I said, it's not like the greatest home invasion movie ever, but I think it's a really good addition to the genre. I guess I would argue that 
the only thing really making this movie seem like anything above average is the strength of the direction Mm -hmm. by Adam Wingard. I think he's a really talented filmmaker. There's some really great visuals in this movie. He he does some really cool things with uh, slow motion. Yeah. And, you know, like, I, I really like the moment where Amy Simetz runs out of the house and then you slowly, he just slowly pans over to reveal there's a mm-hmm. wire there. Um, just, just really well done little moments like that. I think if he was not a very talented filmmaker, there's nothing in this script really to, to make it rise above any other movie in this vein. I think the script's pretty standard most of the time. Well, let's talk about that script, because you had a way different interpretation than I did walking out of the movie. Okay, well, well, before we talk about the ending, I want to talk about the cast, just because I mentioned earlier that so many filmmakers are in this cast, so so many friends of Mm -hmm. Adam Wingard are in this movie, and I'm I'm sure part of it is a budgetary thing, like by casting his friends, he's casting people that have experience working Mm -hmm. in movies, and that probably wouldn't cost too much to hire. So I'm sure part of that was to keep the budget down. But also, a few critics have pointed out that this could be a statement of sorts on behalf of Adam Wingard and and these other quote-unquote mumblecore filmmakers. Kill the directors? Yeah, like basically, you know, these these Joe Swanberg in particular, but but also Ty West and and Adam Wingard. I mean, these are all people that have made a name for themselves making low budget movies. In Joe Swanberg's case, he's considered a pioneer of the quote unquote mumblecore yeah. genre. Very low budget, very improvised, fast and loose mm-hmm. movies. And in your next, they they're all getting killed off. And I'm wondering, are they trying to make a statement here? Like, we're older, we're done with this. Or maybe the industry is killing them. Maybe. That could be it as well. That's interesting. I read one review, I think it might have been over at Slant Magazine, where they pointed out that it seems like whenever the dialogue starts to get a little bit mumble quarry, mm-hmm. like whenever people start to talk in a, a bit quicker and a bit more improvised and you get the dialogue overlapping that's usually when people die whenever it starts to become more of a quote-unquote mumblecore type film i'd have to watch it again and pay attention to see if maybe if, if that's a valid point does that mean i have to watch it three times I, I don't know i mean did you notice anything like that when you watched it a second time well because amy dies running so there's no one really talking. But that is a pretty chaotic scene before she runs. Yeah, because they're all arguing. So it almost happens every time someone's arguing. More right. so, I don't know if that has to do anything with the mumblecore per se, which I took more in meaning with the theory that I came out with, which is violence in American culture. Okay, interesting. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the ending and some of the social commentary. I want to get your Bill O'Reilly take on. <laughs> okay, well, well, here's what... I came away from the movie thinking, and for for most of the film, I was pretty unengaged on an intellectual level. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, when we find out that it's actually Crispin who's behind it all, mm-hmm. the literature professor who claims to be a pacifist who's having sex with his student, he's the bad guy. And we find out that he and Felix have teamed up to do this because they want the inheritance money. Mm-hmm. It It just struck me. I, I couldn't figure out if the movie was trying to 
critique leftist extremism or just critique the left in general. Because it it does seem like this movie is trying to say, hey, you quote unquote liberals out there, you 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 intellectuals, you pacifists, you lower working class people that tend to lean to the left politically speaking, you're anti wealth. In the end, you just want to violently overthrow the rich people and redistribute the wealth to yourself. I was going to say, yeah, it's not much of a redistribution. Yeah, it, it's like it seems to be arguing that the ninety nine percent, using if we're going to use occupied terms, the ninety nine percent wants to overthrow the one percent just because they're jealous and want all their money. And I was trying to figure out if that's what the film is trying to argue. Or if the film is trying to be a more general critique, like, hey, the left can be just as violent and intolerant as the right. Was it just trying to equate both sides, or was it trying to be more pro-right wing? Because, I mean, honestly, the most sympathetic characters in the film are this rich weapons designer and his wife. And they're the ones that uh, get killed first, I think, or almost. Well, the, the wife gets yeah. killed pretty early on. That is one of the last ones to get killed. Right. And, and just you have all this these ideas, like, uh, it's, it's implied that some of these invaders have been sleeping in the house, have been hiding mm-hmm. the entire time. So they're, like, homeless, essentially, and they're literally living in, in the homes of these rich people to violently take it from them. See, they weren't taking the home, though. They were taking the money. Right. Which is why, in my case, I saw it as the whole greed is not good. Greed is what fuels violence in American culture. We take other countries, we develop these weapons, and then we're raised in complacency with these uh, norms, and then it comes out in violence in this situation where they're so distanced from their family that they're like, yeah, I'll kill him for money. And then the interesting person, the outsider, is the final girl. She's Australian. So it's a little different. So she's seeing it through our eyes, how it's so brutal, how it's like it destroys this family. Everyone dies. That's interesting because you, know, you mentioned the final girl. I got the impression that Aaron, she was also kind of a, a politically left-leaning individual. Because she went to college? <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's not just that. It's because mm-hmm. she's Crispin's girlfriend. So you would assume that she has similar political beliefs. But also she mentions when she's talking about growing up on the survivalist compound, how sh- how her father moved her out there because he was afraid of the mm-hmm. economic collapse, which is a, a very left-wing... False. Because Glenn Beck is all about that shit, and he got mad rich off the gold kickback selling that stuff. Uh, that's, I mean, that's true, but... And he also has, like, survivalist tips and things like that. That is far right of Fox. I think any part of the lunatic fringe... Go far enough and you'll find these guys. I feel like whenever I hear the right wing talking about a collapse, they're blaming it on Obama or socialist politics. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Aaron, I got the impression, I mean, maybe I'm just reading into this too much and maybe I'm projecting this onto the film, but I got the impression they were afraid of like a Wall Street collapse of, of, of that type of economic collapse funny because every time i hear about survivalist things i automatically associate it with the far right interesting okay maybe i'm just projecting Mm -hmm. 
onto the film then. But that was going through my mind as well. So, okay. Well, then let me ask you this, Monica. <laughs> if we're if Aaron is – if we're going to talk about the politics of this movie, if, if she's more of a right-wing figure. I didn't say she was a – I didn't say that she was a right-wing figure. I said that she survived the survivalist camp. Obviously, she did end up with the literature professor. It's not exactly what you bring home to your Republican dad. So probably they could be some sort of a distance from that family. Because she does say that she moved in with her mom um, when she was 15 and came to the States. That's true. So there's that. I thought it was interesting because eventually everyone in that family dies. And what's left standing is the foreigner. So that will our country collapse and then who will be left standing? Oh, so I So just it. a continuation of that thought. So you're saying that it's kind of a critique of both sides. It's saying that the left and the right will eventually tear each other apart. Sure. That political conflict between the haves and the have-nots. Could be because the ones who have quote-unquote screwed up in the eyes of the father are the ones that plot the murder against the rest of their family. Right. It's it's the ones that are the least financially successful, that are the lower class. They're the ones that are bitter and don't seem to have a problem killing their rich yeah. parents. So that's why I kind of got the impression that the the more leftist or the, I guess you could say the 99% were, were sort of cast as the villains in this movie, which was is, it, it did strike me as the opposite of The Purge. I mean, The Purge was about rich people running amok being evil, doing whatever they wanted. And this seemed to be a movie about how, oh no, careful, those quote-unquote pacifists are coming for you. Well, it's only the one guy who's pacifist. The other guy, he makes that comment that uh, about the cell phone blocker, and the dad is like, why do you know this? And just kind of like right. accuses him of some sort of maybe possible criminal past. And spe speaking of Felix... And Z, it was just, it was just really bizarre to me how it depicts them because, okay, Crispin's the pacifist and Felix clearly is not a pacifist, but he and Z have their own weird little kinks. Like she wants to have sex by the corpse of his dead mother. Yeah. It just seemed like this very caricatured depiction of the left i guess you could say i feel like the right wing really <laughs> i feel like, well okay yeah okay i feel like okay this this family is very wealthy mm -hmm. they're very religious they open the dinner with a prayer yeah. and i feel like the common stereotype of the left that you hear in right wing circles is that the left you know those evil liberals they're anti-wealth they hate rich people they're too sexually free and deviant, you know, and and the villains in this movie seem to play into that stereotype. It could. I also took it at how just disassociated they were from emotions and those familial ties. Okay, so you just viewed it more as a general critique of politics and family violence. Yeah. That's interesting. Because for Z, the mother meant nothing. For Felix, he's still, that's when it shows us, like, actually, you know what? No, get off of me. Yeah. I don't know. I just, the, the more I thought about it, the more it just seemed to me like this was a movie about the literal destruction of the family <laughs> by the left. <laughs> and the literal destruction of the family by the military-industrial complex. But the father isn't doing any of the killing. No, but the kids have grown up with it. It was a whole, it's a, if you watch Bowling for Columbine... 
one of the things that Michael Moore keeps going to is the fact that Columbine High School is really close to Lockheed Martin. It's the fact that, that you grow up with that violence just around you. And then it finally becomes a part of you. I'm not going to deny that there's a link between systemic violence, political violence, and individual cultural attitudes Mm -hmm. towards violence. I mean, clearly they're not mutually exclusive, but I didn't feel like the film was making that case. I didn't feel like the movie was saying the kids are violent because the dad is violent. I felt like the movie was saying the dad's violence is unacceptable. He's a weapons designer. He's rich. Here's the left that's coming to take his money. Well, we just projected our own biases then. Maybe. I don't know. And, and another problem, I think overall the main problem I have with the movie is that it's just, it's vague. I'm kind of okay with the ambiguity. I don't know. I feel like if you're going to put little bits of subtext about politics in your movie, I, I want to feel like you know what you're, what you're trying to say. If he intended to put any bits of politics into the movie. Why would you put that in your script if you didn't? Maybe as a justified kill, the concept of a justified kill, with he's a weapons designer, so it does equate with murder. But then we're also supposed to cheer when Aaron kills the invaders and, and kills the quote-unquote pacifist. You know, we're also supposed to cheer when they die. Well, yeah, because now they've, they've committed murder, too. Well, I feel like we're not supposed to cheer when the parents die. Did you? No. Okay. So I feel like the the movie is saying their deaths are not okay, but murdering these people that did it, that's fine. Maybe it's the concept of who we consider innocent. I guess. Because technically he could be responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths. Now we feel sorry for him because he was just killed at his dinner table when he just wanted to celebrate his anniversary. Right. So I I felt like the film was almost like on his side. Oh. Kind of. I felt like it was definitely on the side of the quote-unquote 1%. Which, I mean, if, if, if that's what you want to say in your movie, fine. I don't necessarily like it, <laughs> but I, I mean, if that's the movie you want to make, fine. I just, I wish it was a little bit clearer. It, the, the politics of this movie feel kind of muddled, mm. you know, and, and the fact that we can't figure out Aaron and her survivalist camp. Yeah. What, where was she politically? What does she represent in all this, if this is if this is indeed meant to be a political allegory of sorts, it's just, it's just a little bit too vague for me. And I, I feel like while Adam Wingard and and these people, they're clearly very talented filmmakers. I'm not sure they have anything that they're trying to say. And if they do have something they're trying to say, I can't quite figure out what it is. And I'm not interested in seeing a movie if the artist doesn't have something they're trying to say. Okay, could it just be me? Maybe I'm projecting things onto this film. I think we're doing plenty of projecting. Yeah. And and again, maybe we're projecting because the movie is too vague. It puts these little pieces there, but they don't really come together into any sort of coherent subtext. I don't know about that, but... Okay. Could just be that it allows us the space to project in order to see... Right. What we want to see. I guess that's fair. I just... If if, if, if that's what it's going to do, I wish that... It brought something new to the uh, to the genre, or did something new with what it's presenting on screen. It felt very standard to me, and I feel like if you're gonna make a standard home invasion film and and play with some of these tropes, either do something different or have something interesting you're trying to say with it. And I didn't get that. 
from this movie. All right. All right. Well, let's move on to the second film we're going to be talking about this episode, The World's End. On a much lighter note. <laughs> yes. In some ways, a much lighter note. <laughs> in other ways, kind of a dark note. Before we really dive into things, here's a clip. Good evening, Raimondo. The prodigal son's return. Hi. Who's on the guest list tonight? Come again? The guest ales. We, sir, are doing the gold mile, and you have the honor of drawing first blood. <laughs> what do you recommend? There's one. It's crowning glory. Rather fitting. How's that? I'm Gary King. Well, so tell me more. Oh, well, crowning glory. Is it nutty? Is it foamy? Is it hoppy? Does it have a surprisingly fruity note which lingers on the tongue? Mm, spear. Mmm. We'll have five of those, please. No, sorry. Can we have four of those and a tap water, please? What? Okay, Monica, before we get started, all I have to say is, this is why I drink things through a crazy straw. Who's crazy now? Oh. That was my favorite line in the whole movie. It's so good. And now I can never judge a guy drinking a beer out of a straw <laughs> ever again. Who's crazy now? That script is so great. I want to see it again. It's a great script. The dialogue and the jokes of this movie, so well done. Then again, the editing just makes it quick. It's almost like a 1940s movie. Almost like Hill's Girl Friday. It's that speed. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Quip, 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 quip. Yeah, it feels like Edgar Wright took a lot of the same themes and ideas that he was working on in Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and combined that with the pace and the editing of Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Fair. Yeah, it, it, I think it, it just worked out really well. Um, where do you want to start when discussing this movie? Let's start with the king, Mr. Gary King. He's such a great character, and he is the walking symbol of nostalgia. He's a symbol of a lot of that things, too. <laughs> Monica. <laughs> this movie is so layered, but since you brought up the idea of nostalgia, let's let's talk about that a little bit. This is a movie about a guy stuck in the past, trying to recapture the past. There's a great essay by Alexander Holes over at Film School Rejects, basically describing how this movie is actually a commentary on Hollywood and how Hollywood is stuck in the past. Hollywood wants to keep trying to remake mm. things instead of be original. It also goes over into some of our own culture where a lot of the things that's coming back popular are things that are already happened. The fact that, you know, I can get a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle shirt from the 80s design or whatever, easily from Hot Topic or whatever, and keep living out my early childhood geekery. Right. You know, Hollywood is, these days, it's all about sequels, it's all about remakes, it's all about finding whatever property from the 80s or 90s that they can turn into another big franchise. Mm -hmm. And The World's End kind of plays with that. And it's basically all about how being trapped in the past, it's its not good. It's not healthy. I also like now Hollywood as the image of the black trench coat wearing guy that has a Sisters of Mercy shirt. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the main messages of this movie is how you can't keep looking backwards. You have to keep moving forwards. And this movie itself calls back and references so many movies mm -hmm. and, and kind of pays tribute to a lot of science fiction films. But as it does that, it also is sort of subverting them at the same time and turning them into something new and something fresh. So it's practicing what it preaches. Almost. It, it's, yeah. it's taking a lot of these old ideas, 
but not copying them. It's it's making its own thing. Yeah, like the plot of this movie is basically ripped straight from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. But whereas that movie was basically a critique of communism and socialism and this idea that oh no we're all gonna become the same they're everywhere they're coming yeah they, they could be your neighbors they're everywhere uh they, they lack individuality and personality uh this movie takes that same critique except it applies it to corporate capitalism commercialization <laughs> yep that's what i have in my notes too <laughs> yeah and, and it invents a, a word starbucking yeah where uh, someone says that, oh, all, all the uh, pubs have been Starbucks. They've been turned from these little individual mom-and-pop stores into these corporate chains, chains and they, they all look exactly the same. Oh, man, I could not stop laughing when <laughs> that was happening. So it's kind of great because it's a movie about how corporate culture has made everything the same and indistinguishable, but that's what Gary wants. He doesn't care. He just wants to revisit that mm-hmm. past and and go to all these pubs and get completely drunk and capture he wants to get back that feeling he had all those years ago and he doesn't care that things have changed he does when he starts realizing that the bartenders don't recognize him and then that's when it hurts i actually i also included here um Durkheim's concept of enemy when the situation arises where the person just doesn't feel connected anymore then it affects his happiness Oh, man, you're bringing up Durkheim? I love me some Durkheim. All right. Because there's, I mean, especially for British culture where there's also a lot of rigidity and, like, a lot of mannerisms and norms that you're supposed to abide by. There's the fact that he brings the guys back together, but they don't really want to be back together, nor do they really connect with him like they used to. They've moved on with their lives. So it's, like, almost a pressure of him that... He's kind of, he's pathetic because he hasn't grown up like the rest of them. So they're, in essence, sort of rejecting him. As well they should, because he's pretty insufferable. Yeah, no, he really is. Um. <laughs> this is definitely the most unlikable character Simon Pegg has ever there we played. Go, yeah. And, and he's brilliant in the role because somehow he makes that funny and he makes that layered. Yeah. Well, he doesn't, like, mope in the sadness, but there's definitely points where it comes across throughout the film and then because his character's kind of a goof he'll hit his head or something and then forget and then keep going or oh, and on to the next pub right well you you know that it's it's a little bit darker than what we might go in expecting from the very beginning because one of the opening shots is him in an aa meeting yes and it looks like he's in a rehab or either either rehab or a really sad apartment Right, right, and how he's basically telling everyone about how he just, he wishes he could recapture that. Mm-hmm. The reason why I also brought up Anomi from Durkheim is because part of the recapturing that was also him with his friends, that social connection that they all had with each other, the fact that they could go out right. and have these adventures, and he can't get that back because it's gone. Yeah, and that that's what he's trying to get back. He's trying to get back those friendships. He he wants to he wants to time travel. He wants to go back in time to when he was younger and have those experiences and feel like his whole life is ahead of him and and he's on top of the world and not be existentially disappointed mm-hmm. with how everything turns out. It's really dark because he's an alcoholic. Yes. And they never actually come out and say He's an alcoholic, but you see him at a meeting of some sort or in rehab, and he's just so insistent that they have to drink. He has to drink. 
he has to go from one pub to the next. He he drinks the uh, half-empty pints yeah. at one point. Oh, yeah, he, they were fleeing a fight or so. They get kicked out because he's permanently barred That's what it from is, the pub. Yeah. And he does it not just because he wants to be able to say, I had a drink from all these pubs and I completed the Golden Mile. He also wants to do it just because he's an alcoholic and he's addicted. And it's it's really kind of tragic. Yeah. <laughs> the movie is kind of dark because we, at least what I took away from the film was that ending seems to be saying, leave those alcoholics alone. Or they'll destroy the world. <laughs> Let them figure it out on their own. Let Leave them to their own devices. Well, the first step is to admit you have a problem. So if they can't see that... Well, right. Okay. And it, I, I'm still processing the ending. I can't figure out if the ending is really optimistic mm-hmm. or really pessimistic. Because in some ways, the movie seems to be rejecting popular assumptions about alcoholism. And the idea that if you're an alcoholic, you need to go get help, you need to go to AA, you need to go to rehab. Gary leaves all that behind and basically comes to the conclusion at the end, hey, buddy, you need to let me have this drink. You need to let me have this final one. You need to leave me to my own devices because I messed up, but that this is who I am. Almost like it, it's it's a sign of his individuality mm. and his freedom that he's an alcoholic. And in some ways, the, I mean, there, there, there's there's 12 pubs. This is almost like his own 12-step <laughs> program in a weird way. Yes, his own <laughs> quest for sobriety is through more booze. Yeah, it's, it's really, really bizarre and really kind of complex. It, the thing is to prove to himself that he can complete something. Yeah, but at the same time, he's an alcoholic. <laughs> so is that the best thing that he should be completing? Ask for <laughs> best case situation for that. Just that climactic moment is fascinating to me because it ends with, you know, they're being chased by the alien robots. He and Nick Frost are fighting and Nick Frost just doesn't want him to take... Mm-hmm the drink, and that's when he realized that Gary tried to kill himself. And Gary was so nostalgic and so caught up in this dream of what could have been or what should have been that he tried to kill himself. And it's, it's almost like he's saying, there's nothing you can do. I have to have this. Mm-hmm. I have to have this final drink. And if it kills me, then it kills me. And I believe he even says, leave me to my own devices. And then that whole final speech he gives to the aliens, it's really kind of messed up in a way. Yeah, now that you're putting it in that sort of context, it's it's dawning on me like, oh, so he told them to just f*** off. (laughs) Yeah, he like these aliens show up and they say, you need to get better as a species. We're here to help you out. See, I thought that more more of that in terms of maturity for like yeah actually guys you need to grow up and they're like no well, well that's what, well that's why i'm saying there's all these different yeah. levels that it that it's working on and i believe i think uh devin Faraci over at badass digest he wrote a, a really great deconstruction of of the ending and i believe he pointed out that they even mm-hmm. use the word intervention like we're here to this is an intervention yes which is something you mm-hmm. hear in therapy groups a lot. And so it's basically Gary saying, no, I don't want your therapy. I don't want your help. I'm messed up and I'm flawed and I'm an alcoholic, but that makes me who I am and that's what makes me special and screw you. It's sort of this positive affirmation of individuality, but it's 
also a selfish, stubborn refusal to improve yourself. It's also a comedy. It could be like, oh, fighting for the wrong team or, you know, fighting for the underdog sort of thing. Yeah, it, it is. Um, and you, you do kind of want to cheer. Because at the very end, when you hear everyone else has sort of moved on with their life in this weird Mad Max sort of future where there's no more internet and everything collapses, Gary is the one that's leading a group of guys again. Right. And it, it, the, it, the ending, I, I'm, I'm still processing assessing it and i i don't quite know how to feel about it because on the one hand he is saying i'm flawed and i'm an alcoholic and that's great leave me to my own devices screw you and in doing so he destroys the world and the world falls apart and everything goes to hell but then through that he's able to become a better person i'm not sure if it's a better person because it kind of seems like he's the same person now he just has younger clones of his friends like when he, they all first got together because he killed his clone. Right. Yeah. Which is a great moment where he basically, real- which is a symbol of individuality. Yes. It, and it's basically him saying, okay, I realize now I don't want to go into the past. I need to get out of the past. But yeah, at the same time, I am who I am and I don't want to lose myself, mm-hmm. warts and all. So at the end, it's kind of positive because he's no longer drinking. And he orders tap water. Oh, I guess that is an improvement. Yeah, so I guess we're supposed to assume that he overcame his alcoholism. But at the same time, he is still kind of the same person. I mean, you you could argue that he's still kind of the same and maybe he hasn't changed. But you could also argue that he has changed. He's no longer an alcoholic and he's taking responsibility for these blanks, as they call them, that were left yeah. behind that need connection. Mm-hmm. He's becoming their friend, and he's he's fighting for them because they kind of get courted off, yeah, kind of District Nine ish. So I guess you could look at that as a positive, and also Andy, he gets his wife back, and the other guy gets the girl, and everyone seems to be happy, even though poor Martin Freeman has half his head missing, though. Right, <laughs> other than Martin Freeman, <laughs> other than the people that were recycled, yeah, <laughs> the survivors seem to be happy. Living in this world free of technology, back to basics, it's all organic, and it was all caused by, you could argue, Gary's selfishness. I guess, and one one step is that the fact that even though we're better connected internet-wise and Wi-Fi-wise and we can always talk to each other over Facebook, it's actually separated us and it's created a lot of isolation among people. So once that's gotten rid of, it's become more organic, and now people can reconnect the way that they always had before. So are you saying that it's an anti-technology film in some ways? Um, not totally, but just on like the end note, that's the way that I took it, is that actually now that Andy doesn't have work and all the other things to distract him, he can focus on his relationship with his wife. Life got in the way between the guy and the girl... <laughs> for names a guy and the girl falling in love so now they got to work on their connection right i guess that's true and then gary gets friends yeah so the movie seems to be arguing corporate culture is bad it's making everything the same and we need to get rid of it and embrace our individuality and embrace our flaws and get back to the basics there we go that's actually not so messy now I guess. I, I, I don't know. I'm going to have to watch this movie again. Oh, I want to watch it again just for the laughs. It's it's very funny, but that 
last scene, in terms of what it's trying to say, in terms of a character arc for Gary, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to figure out, is it celebrating his alcoholism or just saying he'll change in his own way? He doesn't need outside help or you can't force him to change? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just a really interesting Interesting's the movie. word for it. Yeah. And I actually didn't pick up on the alcoholism thing for the ending because I took it more as a technology thing. Well, that's what, I mean, right before they go down into the floor and talk to Bill Nye, mm-hmm. the network, he tries to take that last drink. He makes the decision to finish yeah. it, finish the Golden Mile. So I couldn't help but link that to his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just a really complex, layered movie. I'm trying to figure out if it's glorifying things that I'm comfortable (laughs) with film glorifying, but it does seem to have this attitude of we're all flawed and we shouldn't try to improve each other. We shouldn't try to force each other Mm -hmm. to change. That's part of what makes us human. There is the concept of self-destruction, though, so that's why that alcoholism is kind of an issue. Right. Almost like it's saying, well, if if people want to self-destruct, we should let them. And there's that old saying that gets repeated at the end, uh, to err is human, to forgive Mm -hmm. divine. And you have that that moment at the end where it's... The way it's shot, he's not just talking to aliens, he's talking to this, like, divine light. Yeah, from the sky. He's talking to God, basically saying, screw you, I'm a flawed person... And you can't change me if I don't want to. So it's sort of a celebration of free will, but it's also saying, you know what? That's part of what makes us human. And if people screw up, you just got to forgive it and you got to you gotta move on. It, I don't know. It, I, I kind of like that. I forgive you, Andrew, for not liking your next better. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I like the fact that it's a that it's a celebration of our humanity, but I'm not quite sure if I'm comfortable with it saying that we should be so in love with our own individuality and our own concept of freedom that we don't try to improve ourselves. Well, I think for most of the Cornetto trilogy, there's a good amount of self-questioning of the culture at large because for Hot Fuzz, it was like this underground board movement that scared most of the town and would kill anybody who would ruin its reputation and then Shaun of the Dead it was again a lot of people telling Sean no we're not going to leave no we're not going to do this and he's like no I have this plan and then going to do it anyways because it's a zombie invasion right so I think this one is also the continuation of sticking it to authority sticking it to what older folks would say you know the authority figures would say and saying no i have this plan guys <laughs> it's a celebration of individuality and you're right the whole cornetto trilogy is in many ways about mm-hmm. the dangers of conformity which i like but then in the world's end they bring alcoholism into it oh my gosh so really that's where you're like nah guys actually this is too much You're over your limit. Go home, Edgar Wright. You are drunk. (laughs) I'm just struggling with it a little bit. Because, I mean, alcoholism is a legitimate problem for a lot of people. An actual disease. Yeah, and in this movie, especially in the end, it it almost seemed like it was framing it as this admirable thing, as this sign of of, of individuality. And, and yeah, if you, you have this vice and it may be terrible... But you don't need to try to change if you can't because you're free and you're just going to stick it to the man and all the people that tell you to change. It's weird because it's sort of saying you don't need to change, but at the same time, it's also saying, well, you do need to change, but in your own terms. Yeah, I guess that that was the thing. It's like on your own terms. Yeah. Once the world has ended, 
once you in your alcoholism and your in your disease have ruined the lives of everyone around you <laughs> stop the robot invasion <laughs> yeah <laughs> then you can uh start to get better <laughs> once you've done that yeah it was it was just really really complex movie and i again i'm i i think the ending's optimistic but i'm also not sure because again the world did end in a way it's just they lost the internet it's not like we lost the planet it wasn't after Earth, man. I don't know. I feel some days I feel like if I didn't have the internet, life would pretty much be over. Our careers would be over. So game over, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the one criticism as we know would come to a standstill if we couldn't tweet about the movie we just saw. I knew I should have studied agriculture. <laughs> Darn it, animal husbandry. <laughs> it was so close. Yeah, this movie is just it's 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 really well done. It's so layered. I love how the uh, the aliens. They keep saying, we're not slaves. We're not robots. Yeah. We do have free will. And Gary seems to be arguing, well, no, I have free will. I'm the individual here. Mm -hmm. You guys are all part of the network. You think you're individuals, but you're not. So, I don't know. It, it was interesting. Just that whole idea of when you go back to places that you grew up and you, you try to revisit the past and, and things seem the same, but they're really not. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to capture that time again it's it's dangerous and it's gonna it's gonna bite you it's gonna turn out to be a robot alien that tries to kill you you're setting yourself up for failure because everything continues on even without you right i think it's uh interesting that the moment we first start to realize that robot aliens have taken over the town is when he's in the bathroom and he talks to that teenage boy and is trying to join up with him and his mm -hmm. group of friends yeah he, he, he so wants to be young again and to ha capture that part of his life again. He doesn't care that it, it, it could be with total strangers. Yeah. Again, that need for social connection. Right. In a society that's rejected him. All right, Monica. I expect to see uh, 2,000 words on Durkheim <laughs> and The World's End in a few days. <laughs> I knew it. Durkheim and the films of Edgar Wright. <laughs> that is a new term paper for this semester. <laughs> Sean of the Anomie. Oh, nice. Mm. And it's funny you brought up suicide because Durkheim was one of the first people to write about the possible causes of suicide. Oh, what did what did Durkheim say about suicide? Oh, basically, um, just that a person in such solitude and um, isolation and estrangeness from the greater culture and socialization then feels he doesn't need to exist in this said culture anymore. That's interesting. That's a good point, now that you've got me thinking about it, because Andy, the whole reason that their friendship was on the rocks was because Gary left him in the car after the accident. Yeah. He ran away. Mm -hmm. That was what did in the friendship, the fact that he left, yeah. and that, that connection was severed. Mm-hmm. So I think you're right. It, this movie is all about connection. And uh, it's also, uh, if we're going to get back to the subject of uh, alcohol, mm -hmm. it's about how alcohol and beer and getting together with friends to drink, that is a form of connection. That is a huge form of connection. Yeah, and that does bring people together, mm -hmm. but that can also take an unhealthy turn and lead to alcoholism and, and the severing of those And tear people ties. apart. Yeah. So I like how this is a movie of contradictions and it's sort of embracing the, the paradoxes and the, how difficult it can be to, to nail some of these things down at times. Mm -hmm. Unlike your next, which I feel like was vague. It's not layered enough for you, Andrew. 
your next isn't layered. It's vague. Okay. The world's end is layered and complex, not vague. <laughs> I definitely feel like there's something Edgar Wright is trying to say. And I can, as, as we've shown, we could make decent guesses as to what it could be, hopefully without projecting too much. Yes, because I know when the average theater goer goes to see World's End, he's thinking about Durkheim. <laughs> <laughs> You see now you make you make me want to go pull out my old my uh, my old sociology textbooks. So Durkheim was one of my favorites. So yeah, I I, I like Durkheim. Oh, by the way, in case listeners were were wondering, uh, <laughs> Andrew and I are both sociology majors. If you didn't know already, spoiler alert! <laughs> it's, it's coming yep. out in the second part of our podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna go pull out my uh, my Max Weber. Uh, Weber was a little dry for me. A little bit. I, I actually weirdly liked Marx, which I felt very oh. guilt. I felt very guilty about because my parents are refugees from a communist country. Oh <laughs> no, Marx! Uh, Marx is fascinating, reg- regardless of whether or not you uh, agree with his philosophy. Actually, sitting down to read, yes, Das Kapital, really interesting. The concept of an idealized man. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Obviously, would not fly in capitalism. <laughs> Obviously not. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you want to say about the world's end? No, I'm good. I'd recommend it. I would highly recommend it, and I gotta drink everything with a crazy straw now. Oh. I really do. I'm not gonna be able to be seen with you at South by. Oh, sure you will. Everyone's gonna be doing it. It'll be the next big thing. Okay. The world's end is making crazy straws cool again. Sure. Oh man, such a such a funny it is movie. Such a good movie. I already want to go out and watch it a second time. There you go. Okay, that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of your next and the world's end here on Cinema Fix. Don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing Getaway. Can I get away from that screening fast enough? Why don't you go away? Get away. <laughs> stay away. Get away. Get away. Get away. I was expecting the falsetto. <laughs> oh, I hope all the Arrested Development fans out there appreciated that one. All right. We would love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the show. Let us know. What did you think of your next and the world's end? Are we reading too much into this? Are we overanalyzing it? Am I totally off base when it comes to uh, the politics of your next? Is the world's end a celebration of alcoholism or a critique? Let me know. Should Monica put away her sociology textbook? She's graduated from college two years ago. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Monica, we're trapped in the past. I never want to leave college. I say it in my college town. <laughs> Email us. Write us a review on iTunes. That would really help us out. Uh, you can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, Avenging Angels, Navigating the Newsroom, and your new show, Monica. Yes. The Nerdy Projectors. Tell us a little bit about that. Yep, it's my friend and I, Michelle Bookman, and we talk about all things nerdy. This last episode that we just posted revolves a lot about con etiquette. I went to Boston Comic Con and Michelle went to San Diego Comic Con and we kind of compared our experiences there. Yeah, and you also talked a lot about uh, Doctor Who. Talked a bit about Who, which we we will be talking about the new Doctor Who in the next episode. So, okay. We have we have thoughts. Where can people find you online? 
People can find me online on Twitter and Tumblr at mcastymovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. They can also find my reviews reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at bofca.com. You can find some of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and patheos.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I will follow you back. That'll wrap it up for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema, even if you're smoking it through a crazy straw. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!